stargazing these nights uh, without the moon up there. I mean, the moon is up there, of course, but uh, since we can't see it, uh, it's darker and uh, the stars look a little brighter. Uh, at least I think that's how it goes. And uh, I guess we can still see Venus and Jupiter and Saturn too, um, if you know where to look and what to look for. Um, I don't, but uh, I still just like to look up at the sky and um and and just try to see what I can see. <laughs> that's that's all we can really do, right? Try to see what we can see. Uh, you know, I look and say, maybe that's Venus. Maybe that is. And that's probably not. Maybe this one is. Uh, anyway, that's what I do. Uh, but you can have your own stargazing rituals and um, talk to yourself and the stars and the planets. But um, I'll stop rambling and just get on with the uh, dreamy, starry work I have for you in this show. I'm going to be reading to you uh, some fantastic work by the wonderful writer Kathy Elric and uh, music by Puppet Midnight. Uh, so let's, uh, let's get right into it. This first piece was published at Parentheses Journal. Daisies Like Galaxies by Kathy Ulrich When the astronaut comes home from space, she falls down in the front yard after the lab tech drops her off. Her wife is trimming daisies, plucks the face from one, places it in the astronaut's hair. I wish I could pick you up, she says. I just forgot how heavy it was, the astronaut says, rolls onto her back spreads her arms wide in the grass. All of this. The astronaut stays on the lawn all day while her wife clips daisies. The grass tickles the back of her neck. She reaches for the sky, thinks, I've been there. I have just come back from there. The sun is going down, she says. It's us going round, says her wife, without turning. You know that. I know that, the astronaut agrees. The astronaut's wife cups her hand around a daisy. She has always grown daisies at this house since she and the astronaut came here. Bellis perennis, she sometimes says to herself, like the ones best with a touch of blush to their white petals. She says, I thought you might not come back this time. I came back, says the astronaut. I'll always come back. In the morning, the astronaut and her wife go out to the astronaut's favorite kitsch store. The astronaut's wife wears a lovely skirt, twirls so it flares up around her waist. The astronaut's wife has always worn skirts since they were girls. Pretty, says the astronaut. So pretty. In the car, the astronaut plays the classic rock station, 
plays Leonard Skinner, plays Zeppelin, plays CCR. There's a bad moon rising, she sings. The astronaut's wife lets her fingers trail out the window. At the kitchen store, the astronaut finds a hula girl statuette. When she taps it on the head, it sways back and forth. She reminds me of you, the astronaut says to her wife, the way the skirt goes. On the shelf, there's a sepia globe. The astronaut spins it, watches the continents blur past. She wonders why anyone would color the earth brown when it is so very blue. She thinks of the smallness of the world, puts her fingertip to the globe, thinks, here, we're right here. The astronaut's wife is holding the hula girl statuette. The fake grass skirt makes a sound, a very small sound, when her breath rustles it. The flower in her hair, says the astronaut's wife. I can't remember its name. All the astronaut can think of when she tries is Andromeda, Pinwheel, Whirlpool. Galaxies, she says, touches her wife's small hand. Galaxies. The hula girl sits on the dashboard for the ride home, dances. The astronaut's wife cuts daisy faces, floats them in a bowl of water on her kitchen table. The neighbors come for dinner, bring a balloon bouquet, one that says, Welcome home. We wanted one that said, Welcome back to Earth, says the neighbor husband, but apparently that's too specific. He laughs, and his wife and astronaut laugh. The astronaut's wife swirls her finger in the daisy bowl, sets the faces spinning. The astronaut's wife is bad at small talk. She relates various facts about hippopotamuses over dinner. The largest hippopotamus was over 9,000 pounds, she says, but in space it wouldn't weigh anything at all. She says, it would still have mass, though. She says, it's not like it would disappear. The daisies are lovely, says the neighbor's wife, sipping from her glass of wine. So lovely. The astronaut's wife says, just because something is in space doesn't mean it has disappeared. She says, nothing disappears, really twists her fingertips in the daisy bowl, spinning them like galaxies.
express and exist simultaneously. midnight with the anchor grounds the boat and the map helps navigate these tricky waters this next piece was published at drunk monkeys like the depth of parsley in butter the girl detective is thinking of braiding her hair the girl detective is thinking of borrowing her mother's best lipstick the girl detective is thinking of the sound of pigeon call on the house rooftop the chitter and hush. The girl detective is thinking of universes twisting together like DNA strands, thinking, I am not alone, I am not the only one. Yesterday, the girl detective solved a murder. Today, she's going to the aquarium with her mother. The murder was a complicated murder. The girl detective solved it by calculating the melting rate of ice cubes in a tall glass of scotch left sitting in the sun. She could tell you the details, but she is afraid they will bore you. When the girl detective mentions the murder, her mother says, That's nice, dear. That's nice. The girl detective's mother is very pretty. The girl detective is pretty, too, but not in a way that makes people stop and look like they do at her mother. The girl detective's pretty is a kind that blends her in, that loses her in crowds, that makes her mother say, if you tried harder. The girl detective's mother is tall and pretty and moves like the wind through reeds. She tells her daughter, watch your posture. She tells her, you shouldn't hunch. Sometimes the girl detective sits on her flowered bedspread and curves her body into a ball, chin tucked to knees, crisscrossed hands holding opposite feet. She sits and sits and thinks. She thinks of pigeon coo and toe scratch, thinks of universes and girl detectives just like her inhabiting them. 
At the aquarium, the girl detective feels the gaze of a hundred fish eyes on her, tries not to hunch under their weight. She sees her reflection in aquarium glass. See-through girl, cloud girl, ghost. Her mother says, look at that one, with a tail and fins that flutter and swirl like the skirt of a dancer's dress. The girl detective's mother puts her fingertips gently to the glass, and no one tells her to stop, despite the don't-touch signs. The girl detective's mother gazes at the long-tailed fish, or perhaps she is doing like the girl detective and watching her own reflection. If the glass had been left where it was found, the ice cubes would have melted sooner. Someone moved the glass. Someone had to move the glass. That's nice, says the girl detective's mother. That's nice, dear. Sometimes, like now, the girl detective will reach into her purse and stroke the side of her honorary deputy's badge. Her thumb goes over and over the rub of it. She looks at the fish and they look back at her, bob to the tank sides, shimmer float in the water. There is one with white spots on it. The girl detective thinks it could be sick. She thinks of saying something. The girl detective often thinks of saying something. The girl detective says, Mother? She says, All I needed to know was who moved the glass. All I needed to know was that, and then I knew everything. Her mother runs her fingertips over the aquarium glass, and the fish comes sliding, sliding along. The girl detective's mother peers at them, or her reflection, smiles. That's nice, she says. That's very nice.
That was Puppet Midnight with Puppets Run the Circus, but the Ringmaster Knows the Score. This next piece by Kathy Ulrich was published at Gordon Square Review. Being the Murdered Mermaid The thing about being the murdered mermaid is, you set the plot in motion. The other mermaids will refuse to work until the tank you were found in is replaced. The other mermaids will sit in the back room of the bar, so aquamarine sequins onto the tails of their costumes. The oldest mermaid will be bad at sewing, will jab her fingertip, jab her fingertip, jab her fingertip, wince every time. The other mermaids will pretend not to see. The other mermaids will do her the favor of not letting her ask for help. The back room of the bar will be quiet, except when one of the bartenders opens the door, the sound of piano Peggy, Eighty-seven years old, never missed a night, seeping in. The oldest mermaid will get a little teary-eyed when she hears the Moonlight Sonata. No kind of a song for a bar. Say, oh, I jabbed my finger again, that's all. The mermaids will sew quietly in the back room, stare quietly when the door is opened. All the mermaids will have green eyes like you did. All the mermaids will be able to hold their breath for two minutes, three four, five. They'll keep in practice in the back room while the tank is being drained, colorful fish they swim with stowed safely in various aquariums throughout the bar. They'll watch for the nod of the oldest mermaid. Now, suck in their breath, hold, hold, hold. For the mermaids, it will seem like everything has gone underwater since you died. The hush and quiet of the sea, They'll like to think of their time in the tank as being part of the sea, the tickle of fish fin brushing against their shoulders, 
winks of the patrons blurred by hazy water. The mermaids will say it's good they're getting this chance to repair their costumes. It never seemed like there was time before. And the door will come open, and Piano Peggy will be playing Chopin's raindrop prelude, music hanging heavy in the air. I jabbed my finger again, the oldest mermaid will say. And the other mermaids will dip their heads and nod. Think of the honky-tonk Piano Peggy used to play before you were killed. How sometimes you would slip some of your tip money into her jar on slow nights. You always thought Piano Peggy never saw, but she could tell by the damp of dollar bill. A different kind than beer or whiskey. Smile, throw in a little Joplin ragtime, and you'd waggle in your mermaid tail like you were nearly dancing. Manager Joe will check in on the mermaids from time to time. He'll be thick and sturdy, and they will think of manatees when they see him. We'll long for the taste of salt water when he says to them from the doorway, Soon, girls, soon. Manager Joe won't say you were his favorite, but everyone will know you were. You are everyone's favorite. The best, they'll say, the best mermaid. Gaze at the lowering water in the tank. Toast you with blue mermaid cocktails. Teal umbrellas tip sadly to the side. Manager Joe will donate money to your family so they can afford to take you to the sea and scatter your ashes there. She always wanted to visit the ocean, Manager Joe will say. Put a folded-up check in your mother's hand. The other mermaids will think Manager Joe wouldn't pay their parents to take them to the sea. The other mermaids will think they'll outlive Manager Joe anyway, the way he wheezes sometimes, like a fish twisting on land. The other mermaids will sew, sew, sew. When the bar goes dark for the night, the mermaids will come out of the back room, sequins and costumes stowed in bags tucked over their shoulders. The mermaids won't speak to each other as they leave, except the way they have talked through the tank. Whisper of eyelash flutter, twist and curve of hand. The other mermaids will know when the oldest mermaid stumbles over a gesture. Sore fingertip tripping. Will blink and curl their fingers, reply without words. Yes, yes, we miss her too. Sometimes you got a rug 
That means you like to climb in German In a Jurassic God Disguise yourself as one of you Suppose a water monster To avoid being killed by the other gods You come in a variety of colours And you swim and you walk and you climb Oh so playfully axolotl living permanently in the water you don't develop lungs and never grow up that's a key little axolotl living permanently in the water swimming in the water. This next one was published at Oyster River Pages, Nothing But Silence. The astronaut, when she is young, goes to the prom with a boy from her AP calculus class. His name is Sidney and he drives a blue sedan. When he is 23 and the astronaut is earning her master's degree, he will die in a car wreck. No one will think to tell the astronaut, No one will remember that it was him who took her to prom in that rustling violet dress. The day Sydney dies, Sydney with the perfect teeth, Sydney with the neat handwriting, Sydney with the blue sedan, the astronaut will dream she is slow dancing with Barbara Walters from her parents' Friday night news shows, Barbara Walters smartly attired in a suit dress. In her dream, the astronaut will be wearing the same dress she wore to prom with Sydney, but she won't remember the dress, or his name, 
or the way he revved the engine of his blue sedan at stoplights. She will wake, reaching for the phone at her bedside, thinking the song from her dream is the sound of its ring, and be surprised, hand outstretched, to be greeted by nothing but silence. There will be a girl at home waiting for the astronaut, a girl she will later marry, a girl attending the community college, a girl investing the money her abuela left her in stocks, a girl in a tiny apartment on the other side of town from where they grew up, a girl who takes the bus back to the old neighborhood every Sunday for dinner with her family. The house feels so much smaller than it used to, she will think when she stands on the front step. When she goes inside, there will be her mother and father, her three older brothers and their pretty wives, and all her little nieces and nephews, Tia, 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 clamoring around her legs, and enchiladas on the table. The house will be bright and warm and oh so full, and the astronaut's future wife will hardly look across the way at the house with the for-sale-by-owner sign in the lawn, curtains drawn, gray and quiet. She will have told the astronaut, Your father is selling your home, nestling her face close to the phone mouthpiece. And the silence on the other end before the astronaut said, It's his home, not mine. Before she said, You're my home. The astronaut's future wife will turn away from that gray house, join her family for dinner. I saw that a boy from your old school died, her mother will say. She is always sharing news about people from their old school. And her sons will kiss her cheek and call her, Mama, we never knew him, Mama. And when she looks at her daughter, the girl will shake her head. I never knew him either. There will be flowers at Sydney's funeral. Flowers from bankers and orthodontists and several lawyers in town who are friendly with the parents. Sorry for your loss. Let us know if we can do anything cards in the basket by the sign-in book. And the high school choir warbling a rendition of You Raise Me Up. The astronaut will never know that Sydney had a funeral. Will never know that Sydney has died. She will try to remember his name from time to time. In space especially, where her mind floats and she floats. She will think, I went to prom, didn't I? And she will remember the violet dress and the shoes her mother took to get dyed to match. She will remember feeling like a princess when he pinned the corsage to her chest. Will remember how the flowers were pressed between them when he held her close, too close, while they danced. When he said into her soft ear, You're so pretty. She will try to remember his name, his face. Where did he live? What class did we have together? Did I like him? Did I like any of them? And she will smile in the video she is making for home. Smile like she doesn't on earth. Curled and soft smile. A smile for her wife. Only her wife. I wish, I wish, I wish you were here. It's a glorious 
That was Puppet Midnight with Communicating with and Channeling the Dragon Spirits Atop Arthur's Seat. And this next piece by Kathy Elric was published at The Hunger. Safe in the Dark The girl detective goes to the Gem and Mineral Show with her mother and father. It is a special excursion. It is a jaunt. The girl detective is nearly 12. In three years, she will be kidnapped. 
Yesterday, the girl detective was given an honorary deputy's badge in a ceremony at the town hall. Her mother, in one of the folding chairs, clapped politely. Afterward, they stopped in the restroom so she could reapply her lipstick, smooth her eyebrows with her fingertip. The girl detective held her hands under the automatic faucet until the water came out steaming hot. Don't, said her mother, and the girl detective took her reddened hands away. She had a thin-strapped pink purse that her parents had gotten her for Christmas. She tucked the deputy badge in the inner pocket. She thought of it safe in there, safe in the dark. The girl detective's father couldn't make it to the ceremony. Busy, you know, he said. Work, work, work. But he planned the trip to the gem and mineral show. For his girls, he calls them sometimes. All the pretty shiny things. It's nice, he says, isn't it? And the girl detective nods, and her mother nods, and there is soft music in the background that sounds somehow like the chirping of birds. On the ride to the Gem and Mineral show, the girl detective rode in the back seat. She looked out the window from time to time, took notes in her notebook. Something is coming, she writes from time to time, something long and dark. The week before, she had identified a serial burglar from the curve of his instep. It's you, she said, coming up from the ground where she had been crouching. It's you. And his eyes went narrow and hard. Girl detective, he said. Girl detective. And it sounded like a curse. After he was taken away, the sheriff shook her hand, gripping her small fingers tightly in his. Congratulations, he said. And somehow that sounded like a curse, too. At the Gem and Mineral show, the girl detective falls behind her mother and father. The girl detective is always doing that, falling behind. Her mother has long ago stopped waiting. Her mother told her once a joke with three tomatoes on a walk. It ended with the father tomato losing his temper. It ended ketchup. Do you see, said her mother. But the girl detective didn't see it all. The girl detective has an Instagram account and 15,000 followers. The girl detective carries a magnifying glass in her backpack to school. She rides a yellow bus, sits alone, smooths and smooths the creases in her uniform skirt, listens to the hum of the other children's conversations. She doesn't think they are ever talking about her. The girl detective lags behind her mother and father, lingers at damask-draped tables. All the signs say, don't touch. The girl detective's fingertips tingle. She stops at a blue-covered table, thinks everything is blue today. The table, the sky, the gems, her mother's eyeshadow that she applied and reapplied until it was just so perfectly right, how do I look to her daughter? And the answer, always, the only right answer, you look pretty. What are these, says the girl detective, points at rocks that looked wrapped in silk threads, petrified cocoon rocks. Desert rose selenite, says the vendor. And the girl detective thinks, no, they don't look like roses at all. They look like eggs. The girl detective thinks of cracking, thinks of hatching. The girl detective hands the vendor $5 from her pink purse. Her thumb brushes against the edge of her honorary deputy badge, hesitates there. 
Be careful, says the vendor, handing her the rock. It's soft. The girl detective thinks, yes, eggs always are. That was nice, wasn't it, her father says on the ride back. He has the window down and his words blow away so that the girl detective and her mother don't have to answer. He never seems to expect an answer anyway. Talks as if his voice is the only thing his wife and daughter want to hear. The girl detective's mother looks out the window, one hand on her chin, the other pressed against the window. Thinking of escape, the girl detective decides. At night, her mother plays records and drinks glass and glass and glass of wine from bottles the cook opened with dinner. Sits in front of the vanity table in her bedroom, stares into the mirror as if there is something there she has never seen before. The girl detective sees her from the hallway, the listless lift of her mother's hand, brush-holding to her long, dark hair. You don't have to watch, her mother says. You look pretty, says the girl detective. She never knows what else to say. You look so pretty. In the car, she watches her mother looking out the window. In the car, she listens to the sound of her father's voice, thinks of the weight of her honorary badge in her purse, how it is somehow light, somehow heavy. In the car, she cups a tender desert rose selenite in her hands, thinks hatching, thinks flight, thinks free, free, free.
That was Puppet Midnight with Woodland Fire Destroying Bird's Nest Atop Kostorfin Hill. This piece was published at Jukt. And she was. In a universe where time moves a bit slower than the others, a girl detective is being born. Songs are slower here. Time takes longer. The smallest things lengthen and stretch by the tiniest of increments, almost unmeasurable. The girl detective is being born, and she isn't a girl detective yet, or even a girl. A mere baby detective hasn't yet seen the world with her own eyes, hasn't yet breathed her own breaths, spoken her own voice. She is being born, and knowing that there are universes and universes and girl detectives in them all, and someday she will be a girl detective too, wear her hair like the rest, long and straight, and someday she will carry an honorary deputy's badge in her purse, shine thumb-rubbed to dullness. Someday she will take the badge out of her purse, only in her door-closed bedroom, only alone, only when no one is looking. Hold it in her hand, think, this is real, this is mine, think, I am real. This is all real. The baby detective knows she will someday solve crimes, someday eat ice cream out of glass bowls that a maid will take away for the washing. She knows she will never have to get her hands dirty on her own chores, knows that her mother will play sad songs on a turntable at night, knows her father will be gone so long, business trip, business trip, business trip, call from overseas, his merry voice, How are my girls? The baby detective knows her mother will always flinch a bit at that. My girls. Knows she will never quite understand why. She knows someday she will join the school choir, will consider piercing her ears, will consider holding hands with Thomas from chemistry class as they walk home from school, leaves turning for autumn, scent of winter on the air. She'll consider, when their hands brush, letting him take hold of hers the way she knows he will want to, the way he will stand at the iron gate of her house until her heavy front door closes behind her, watching, watching. She knows she will consider, never let him do it. The baby detective knows that this universe is like all the others, but slower, that she is like all the other girl detectives, but slower. She knows that there are long black cars and long black cars. She knows that she will never be fast enough, will never catch the full license plate. Three AGL, but maybe it is a nine? She knows that she will try to run, will try to fight, that the hands that grab her will be so large they can grip her slight shoulders and lift her off the ground. She knows she will kick, kick, shout, and the trunk lid will close on her, and there will be darkness, darkness, darkness. The baby detective is being born into one of the universes, is being born knowing, and yet still, when she is pulled out into the world that she has never seen, it is new, it is unknown, and the baby detective opens her mouth and wails, and forgets.
get you back after an adventure and after a short while we were kissing outside the red door the red door on a Tuesday. Midnight with the Red Door walking back after an adventure. Oh, time for Picalia. And on the menu today is a mini interview with our featured musician, Puppet Midnight. Puppet Midnight is a Scottish musician based in Edinburgh, where he's lived for 10 years, but is originally from Aberdeen. 
He writes and performs music both on his own and as part of a few bands. He's been performing solo under the name Puppet Midnight since 2019 and would describe his solo music as alternative, frantic, angular, indie punk solo bass compositions with some vocals telling tales of burning mattresses, puppets, flying armchairs, and woodland fires, amongst other things. However, he also has some songs where he plays the ukulele and has even done a spoken word song recently. And he has a debut album coming out later this year. And you can find out more about him and his music and uh, purchase songs and albums on Bandcamp at puppetmidnight.bandcamp.com. And he was kind enough to answer a few questions for the Violet Hour. One, what is your earliest memory of a puppet? I've been fascinated with puppets from a very young age. My earliest memories of puppets would be watching The Muppets, Sesame Street, and Sudi as a child. I've got a lot of love for all of these shows and have fond memories associated with each. We only had a handful of videos in the house when I was growing up, and one of these was Muppet Sing Along, which I loved watching. This was also my introduction to the song Octopus's Garden, which is my favorite Beatles song. Both my maternal and paternal grandparents had a few great videos, too. They had videos of City and Company and Sesame Street, which also I loved watching. Another early memory I have is being unwell one winter when I was young and watching A Muppet Christmas Carol, which to this day is still my favorite Christmas film. 2. If you were to create a diorama of your obsessions, what would you include? What materials would you use? What would the scene look like? And what would you title it? If I was to create a diorama, I'd like to make one related to Greek mythology, which is something I'm rather interested in. Specifically, Haron the ferryman transporting a deceased soul across the river Styx to their afterlife in the Greek underworld. I've been writing a concept album about the Greek underworld recently, which I'm excited about. Anyways, I've never had to make a diorama before, so I would keep it quite straightforward. From a Google search, I see that you can make one using a shoebox, so I would use that for the general scene. I'd need paint and paintbrushes to paint the shoebox, lollipop sticks to make a boat, a toothpick for Haron's pole, a small bit of foil for the coin the human would use to pay Haron for passage, and then clay or plasticine to make Haron and the human deceased soul. The scene would have Haron in his boat at the riverbank of the river Styx, holding his pole in one hand, with his other hand stretched out to take the coin as payment from the human. The human would be standing on the riverbank itself with a coin in their hand ready to pay Haron. The riverbank would be rocky and pale, and the river Styx would be dark blue and there would be large rocks on both sides. I guess I'd call it the same name as one of the songs on the album where said scene happens. Haron the ferryman transports the deceased soul across the river Styx. 3. What is your songwriting process and creative practice like? Can you tell me about your new album coming out later this year? Also, can you talk about how you come up with your song titles? Song ideas can come from anywhere, really. I don't think I've ever composed two songs in the exact same way from start to finish. A bunch of songs start with me just playing around on the bass and seeing what happens. The first bunch of Puppet Midnight songs came from doing just this and putting ideas I came up with together into songs. The song titles for those, i.e. the first four songs, were just phrases I liked that weren't meant to be permanent, but they ended up being the final song names. I guess they kind of just stuck. Well, three of them were. 
Burning Mattress Outside Tollcross Wastebins came from a scene I witnessed and just thought it'd be a good song name. Some of my later songs were composed in a similar way, but then I started adding lyrics over the top of them. Other times I've had the concept of a song, i.e. a title based off a story that happened or something I've been thinking or reading about, and then written the music and lyrics after that. For instance, I wrote the Dragon Spirit song after I'd been on an adventure. After I returned home, I grabbed my bass and went and sat under a tree and the song just came to me. Another example would be I wrote a song about crabs being taxis because a friend of mine would always call taxi cabs taxi crabs, and I was just thinking about what that would be like one day. I often have initial drafts of my songs, too, which then develop over time and can change in places before becoming the final version. Sometimes they'll sit at a partially completed stage before I come up with a new idea on how to go further with and complete the song. I like long titles for my songs and to tell a self-contained story with each song, but then when a bunch of songs are put together as an EP or album, I like to think of a bigger, wider narrative. I've written accompanying short stories for each of my EPs and the song I wrote about Axolotls, which has been a nice different way to be creative. My new album coming out later this year is called Imagination, Dreams, Tales, Stories, Myths, and Fables. It was recorded in May of this year at Chamber Studios in Granton, Edinburgh by Graham Young, who has an incredible set of ears. I'm rather delighted with how it turned out. Also, the album artwork is super lovely and was done by my good friend Bernd Pa, who is an ace psychedelic musician artist. 4. What are your five favorite words associated with mattresses? Sleeping, bed, wood, soft, springs. With armchairs? Relaxing, fire, comfy, adventure, tea. With oceans, swimming, blue, deep, beautiful, wildlife. Five, what advice would you give your seven-year-old self? What advice do you think your seven-year-old self would give you? When I was seven, I remember trying to play the recorder and being terrible at it. So I'd maybe tell my seven-year-old self, don't worry, music will properly click for you one day, and you will eventually be able to play something. I could tell them the bass is the instrument that they are going to have so much fun learning to play and creating with, and that it will make everything make sense for them, but maybe that would spoil the musical journey that they have yet to embark on, so I'd probably stick with the first statement and keep it vague and mystic. I think my seven-year-old self would maybe be able to offer me some good suggestions for song titles. I'm sure they'd have some great ideas about puppets, dinosaurs, animals, and stuff. I can sometimes overthink things that really aren't important, and I think my younger self would probably be able to show me that it's not worth it, and sometimes it's the simple things in life that can make you the happiest. I reckon I would also be really inspired by their creativity, imagination, and sense of wonder. Bonus, if you were a stuffed animal, what would you be? This is a tough one, as there's a few good choices. I can start by narrowing it down to five options. Stegosaurus, dragon, bat, turtle, or platypus. These creatures are all well cool. Guess it would depend on the day which I'd rather be. Let's go with the platypus. I have a song about them called Why Do Platypuses Lay Eggs After All? And I've been reading a bunch about them lately and watching videos of them. The platypus is an incredibly unique and interesting animal, one of only two mammals which lays eggs, and a stuffed toy version of one would be well cute and cool. 
Well, I agree. Platypuses are very cool. Uh, thanks so much, Puppet Midnight, for those answers. Uh, again, you can find Puppet Midnight's music online at puppetmidnight.bandcamp.com. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo, tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. Mousie. Oh, hey, Mr. Bear. So good to see you. I can't believe it's the new moon already. Oh, no, right? Time time just flies when you have a podcast twice a month tied to the cycle of the moon. Oh, oh Mr. Bear, you're so funny. Oh, thanks, Miss Mousie. Uh, so what's shaking? Or I should say, what are you shaking in that jar? Oh, it's one of my herbal tinctures. This is Yellow Dock Root Rumix Crispus. Um, everyone should have some on hand. It's um, a very uh, gentle um, stimulant. Helps the digestion, liver, gallbladder. So uh, super helpful if you're constipated. Oh, yeah, that's uh, never, never a fun place to be. No, it's not. And, uh, you know... A lot of people, um, a lot of people struggle with it, and, um, you know, no one likes to talk about it. Uh, yeah, but maybe we should talk about it. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I have a lot of strategies for constipation, because that's the thing, it's, it's never just one thing, you know? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, you gotta, you know, you gotta come at things from uh, all different angles. Uh, there's not, not just one, uh, super pal answer. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and, you know, I do want to remind uh, your listeners that I'm a hand-drawn two-dimensional rodent studying herbalism, um, just in case they forgot. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, let's, we'll, we'll remind them of that. But uh, anyway, um, you know, with um, constipation, one of the first things I think about is um, hydration. Uh, and not just are you getting enough water, but are you getting enough good fats and oils in your diet? Because uh, that's really important. And another huge thing is fiber. Fiber, fiber, fiber. Everybody needs more fiber. Um, so, you know, veggies and uh, just, as, you know, you can't have too many veggies, too much fiber. Well, you can have too much fiber. Like, if you go from none to a whole lot, uh, you can be really uncomfortable. So, you know, you can, can start adding more, um, more slowly if, if you're, you know, if you're starting from a place of, you know, very little. Oh, that, that makes sense. 
uh, well, um, I like to, to move a lot, you know, I think people sit at desks and in cars and, you know, they don't, and on couches and uh, they're not moving enough. Yeah, exactly. Um, movement is very important. So yeah, along with the hydration and the fiber, moving your body, you know, making sure you get up and take breaks, um, listening to your body. So you know, as soon as, as soon as you have to go, you go, you know, you don't, don't wait, don't hold it. Um, some other things. Oh, yeah, probiotics and prebiotics. Those are what feed your probiotics um, that you you get in certain you know herbs and root vegetables and um, so it's to keep all the all the you know all the all the things in your gut happy you know the microbiome which um, you know people a lot of, a lot more people know about the microbiome now you know it's a lot more studied and talked about yeah it's true um, um there's there's lots of things out there it's really confusing yeah it it can be um and uh you know i sometimes you know sometimes you really need to work with um with you know buying some probiotics in a pill but uh, i like to work with fermented foods so you know get yourself some good kimchi or sauerkraut um kombucha you know things things that are alive um um you know you don't you know sauerkraut in a can might be tasty, but um, it's not gonna it's not gonna give your 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 gut bugs the things they need. Um, so yeah, you know, get you want to get your stuff from the refrigerated section when you buy your sauerkraut, you know, or um or just make it, you know, it's just cabbage and salt. Chop up some cabbage and uh, sh- you know, shake some salt in there, mix it up, pound it into a jar. The salt uh, makes the um, breaks the cabbage down, releases the the liquid from the cabbage um, in out, and then it you know that's that's your liquid, so you don't need to add any extra liquid, um, and just you know leave it leave it out a uh, few days, burp the jar once a day, and uh, after a couple of days, start tasting it and. You know, go go from there. It's super easy. I mean, you can you can add herbs and other things to it uh, too. I just made one that has jalapenos and garlic in it. But uh, really, all you need to do is cabbage and salt. And once uh, once you're happy with the flavor, you just put it in the fridge. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. Oh, delicious! I love sauerkraut. But you know, if that even seems like too much, you can just you know. Buy some cabbage, cook some cabbage, but the fermented is is really good, good for your gut. Um, And let's see, liver support. Um, I love milk thistle. Take my milk thistle every day. Oh, yeah, me too. Milk thistle. Uh, You know, everybody's liver needs a little extra help. That's right. Um, and St. John's Ward, if you're not on pharmaceuticals, that's um, another terrific one. One of my favorite teas. And, uh, oh, and, uh, marshmallow root cold infusions. You know, when we talk about hydration and, you know, making sure we're, we're keeping ourselves hydrated, um, a marshmallow root cold infusion is just one of the best ways to do that. Um, so, uh, yeah, just, it's not, you know, it's not, um, it's not marshmallows that you make s'mores with. It's, um, the mallow plant family. 
um, you know, marshmallow, Athea officinalis, and uh, it's just a beautiful plant, and uh, you can work with the leaves and the flowers too, uh, but a, a cold infusion from the roots is, is really going to get you the most um, demulcency, uh, which is basically uh, the slimy factor. What else? Oh, you know, a bath, a sitz bath. If you're really constipated, do a nice sitz bath with Epsom salts. You can also, you know, make some herbal teas. Um, but even just uh, warm water and Epsom salt, sit in and, um, and yeah, that's that's a lot, a lot of things I just said. Yeah, I know. It's uh, it can feel overwhelming. I know, but uh, the the good thing is. It's, there's not just one thing. There's there's a lot of things, and so if something doesn't appeal to you or you can't do it, you know there are there are other things you can work on. So um, anyway, like I said though, when when you gotta go, you gotta go, and you shouldn't wait. So uh, I gotta go. Bye, Mister Bear. Uh, bye, Miss Mousie. Thanks. See you next time. On the back of a kind of sea turtle, a kind of sea turtle. Look to the left and you'll see a pair of otters, a mating pair, joyously swimming together. the oceans on the back of a kind old sea turtle. And that's the show. I hope you enjoyed that selection of beautiful stories by Kathy Ulrich. Kathy is a wonderful writer and editor and champion of other writers. Uh, she has tons of beautiful work out there, including a gorgeous book, Ghosts of You, which is available at OK Donkey Mag. 
That's O-K-A-Y donkeymag.com. And you can find out more about Kathy and also find more of her writing and work at her website, kathyulrichwriter.wordpress.com. That's C-A-T-H-Y-U-L-R-I-C-H-W-R-I-T-E-R.wordpress.com. And she is always sharing other writers' work on Twitter. And you can follow her at Loki underscore writes. That's L-O-K-I underscore W-R-I-T-E-S. And she also has a journal, Milk Candy Review. And you can read the writing she publishes there at milkcandyreview.home.blog. So again, check out uh, more of her wonderful work. And make sure you pick up her book, Ghosts of You, uh, from OK Donkey. Thanks again to Kathy Elric and Puppet Midnight for sharing their work in the Violet Hour. I'll be back with you for the full moon later this month. Uh, so I hope you all take care. Uh, go out and do some stargazing and be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, you can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.